This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And I want to give a special thank you to Clement Coleman, Garrett Lester, and Anders Kilstedt, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Special thanks as well to Ask Your Friends, who just gave us five stars on iTunes, writing, This podcast has inspired me to finish a lot of my science fiction writing, and it's also introduced me to amazing authors via a fantastic interviewer. It's also inspired me to apply to Clarion West this year. Thank you. So big thanks again to Ask Your Friends for that great review, and I hope you get accepted to the workshop. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 376 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing seasons one and two of the Netflix original series, The OA. And this will include spoilers for every episode of the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 14th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and his short story Late Train appears in the February issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. So Anthony, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me back. The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, also making her 14th appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and lives in New York City with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Raphael Jordan, making his ninth appearance on the show. He's written over 25 feature films that have premiered on video and cable television, including The Immortal Voyage of Captain Drake, Star Runners, and Vampire Nation. He also co-wrote the new series Salvage Marines, starring Casper Van Dien and Peter Shinkota. So, Raphael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. Okay, and so how this panel came about is a few weeks ago, we did a panel on pretentious science fiction movies. And one of the movies that listeners recommended that we watch is called Another Earth. And um, listeners said that the writer, Britt Marling, uh, I think co-writer of that, had also written, co-written and starred in the show, The OA. And they said that was also pretentious. And I actually liked Another Earth quite a bit. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll like The OA. And in the course of that panel, Anthony and Sarah both said, well, Anthony said it's super pretentious that the OA is super pretentious, but I love it. And then Sarah kind of chimed in saying she loves it too. And so I was yeah. like, okay, well, yeah, I'll definitely check it out now. <laughs> um, at that time, I, I had absolutely no idea what the show was about at all. Uh, a couple of listeners had you know, requested that we talk about it, but I had no idea what it was about or even what genre it was or who was in it or anything. Um, and then sort of we were in the early stages of that conversation about recording a panel about the OA when it was announced that Netflix had canceled the show after two seasons. And so that kind of um, created a sense of urgency, like, well, we should talk about it now uh, because things are happening and this might be the end of the show. And maybe we can do some small part to uh, get it a little more attention or maybe even get it saved in some form, get a capstone episode or something. Who knows? Um, but so, yeah, so how about let's start with, uh, Anthony and am I quoting you correctly that you said this is super pretentious, but you love it? I think that is a fair representation of my feelings. Um, when I said that I'd only seen the first season of the show 
And I, I think it had sort of become a little blurry in my memory and that a lot of the sort of details of multiple and, and thinking back on it now for this episode, like, I, I think I have, I had mixed feelings about the show while watching that first season in particular and how I think it just, there's certain, the pacing was a little off. There were, it just seemed like they were trapped in, um, this one setting, the, the lab for a very long time. And so there, there were specific, you know, reservations I had about it, but I felt so strongly that it ended on a really strong note and that in general, it was just so willing to risk looking dumb or pretentious and that I, I really just, you know, admired it for, for being willing to go there more than anything else. Yeah, I guess I'll just say, I'll make clear that I went into this with fairly like low to medium expectations because, yeah, because I, I had sort of heard about it in the context of pretentious TV shows. And it seems like everyone on social media that I asked about it or pretty much everyone said that they'd given up on the show at some point in season two. So, uh, so yeah, I went into this with fairly low expectations and I actually liked this quite a bit. I, I thought this was really, really quite good. Um, and so, so how about Sarah? Did you, I forget, did you say that this was pretentious and you loved it or you just loved it? I wouldn't, uh, I just loved it. I mean, I, I don't think I would use the word pretentious just because it does carry such a negative connotation, even though the last time we, we had that panel, we, we, we went into what, you know, what does pretentious mean to you? And it's one of those nebulous words, right? Um, but I think that, you know, she uses a lot of the, the, the tools of things that, that are associated with pretentiousness. But I think for the most part, um, you know, it's incredibly gripping. It's incredibly entertaining. Um, the characters are all really well done and lovable. And so it's easy to watch. It's not, you know, it, it's not the difficult to watch, to slog through, you know, things that we were talking about in that episode about pretentious films. I guess I should also just explain, yes. Yeah, so this move, this, uh, the show is created by Britt Marling and um, Zal Batmanglidge, and they've done a bunch of feature films together with him directing and her starring and them writing them together. Um, and so they got this Netflix deal. Um, so about Raphael, did you, how much uh, did you know about the OA um, going into this panel? Uh, actually quite a bit. Um, I've been a big Brit Marling fan since Another Earth, uh, 2012 or 2013, I guess. And uh, so I watched season one in one night when it first came out and I actually liked it a lot. Um, so I was really looking forward to season two. I just didn't get around to it immediately. So I feel bad, um, on that front, but I really enjoyed it. You know, I thought it expanded on the ideas really well. So what do you think? Of, I, I, I totally agree with what Anthony said that the show risks being silly, um, or, you know, having people not like it. Um, I mean, I, I agree. It, it, it does seem to be just an objective fact that it's a very polarizing show just based on reviews that I've read. Um, what do you think? Did, did, did you, Raphael, did you feel like it was, um, like it's silly or did you not have that reaction? You know, I think when you're first watching it, the whole interpretive dance movement thing can throw you a little, but, you know, it's visually pretty interesting. And, um, I think season two did a good job of kind of making it make more sense and, and make it worthwhile. I mean, you know, overall, I thought it was a really worthwhile show. I mean, kind of reminded me of some other sci-fi shows with good ideas about that sort of thing. I don't want to get too specific yet. Yeah, yeah. How about Sarah? Do you, um, 
what do you think about the polarizing and the um, silly aspects of the show? I think that, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things, again, you know, I recalled it going back to my art school <laughs> upbringing and stuff like that, where I'm like, it's unfortunate that something as simple as interpretive dance it can scare people off. Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, we, we, we can't have a show about, you know, a, a, a telepathic octopus. I won't, I promise I won't get into details of season two <laughs> without people freaking out. And I'm like, come on, you guys, this is, this is the bare bones of fiction. This is why we show up. This is, this is, you know, especially science fiction and speculative fiction. There have been some crazy plots out there that everyone has accepted at face value very quickly, depending, I think, on how it's packaged. Um, and I have some feelings about that. Um, I think, you know, in part, there are a lot of female characters in this show. Um, you know, there are, it, it, I think there's, are things to say about how readily we accept crazy plot points, depending on how they're packaged, how they're, you know, whether or not they're men that carry them out or, or whether they're women. Um, but I think that's part of the show. It's one of the reasons why, you know, people have, have uh, had some conspiracy theories about the cancellation being part of the of the overall narrative, um, which unfortunately is probably not true. But it's, you know, it, they, they play with us. They play with the audience in it, and the audience participation is part of it. And I, I wish that people were just a little more patient and receptive to, you know, just being open-minded about that. All right, well, let's set, set up the story so we can get that out of the way. Um, so the, the premise of the show is it starts out and there's, we see this woman, um, sort of seemingly wandering dazed on a bridge and she jumps off the bridge in an apparent attempt to commit suicide. And then she wakes up in a hospital and, um, her parents come to pick her up and we find out that she's been missing for seven years and that uh, she was blind at the point that she disappeared and, and somehow she's regained her sight. Um, and so uh, the police obviously want to know where she's been, but her answers are very sort of spacey and they get frustrated and say they'll come back in a week once she's had time to collect herself and, and maybe her, her responses will make more sense. And so she, um, you know, goes back to her childhood home with her parents and then um, sort of starts hanging out in this abandoned house or, or there's sort of this um, they're in this development that never got finished. So there are these empty houses around. And so she starts hanging out in this empty house with these local teenage boys and and one of their uh, uh, fairly soon one of their teachers as well and starts telling them the story of where she's been for the last seven years. And to make it very quick, uh she um, had had vision. Oh, boy, this it gets really complicated. Um, it turns out she grew up in Russia, and um, someone tried to kill her because they didn't like her dad, who was an oligarch. You know, sort of the Russian mob tried to uh, kill her because they didn't like her dad. But she survived. But she went blind in the process. Uh, he was killed soon thereafter, uh, and she went to live with her aunt, who then gave her to her parents. <laughs> Uh, who adopted her uh and uh then she was she had visions um, boy i didn't really realize how complicated this was going to be before i started talking but uh <laughs> so um 
her uh she has visions and she believes she's going to be reunited with her father so she goes to the statue of liberty uh hoping to meet him when she's like 26 or something um but he's not there she gets kidnapped by the scientist who is performing experiments on her uh because she had this near-death experience uh which gave her amazing musical ability and she is imprisoned with a bunch of other people um who also have had near-death experiences so i think i'll stop there uh is everything i just said is that all correct am i am i missing anything vital there uh more or less i think that's right i mean part of it is is that most of this is happening in sort of like as as the show goes on is happening in this very non-chronological order because it's it's her and then her like you know the present story and then her telling the story about what's happening to her so it sort of gets a little shaky but but i that matches everything that i remember so, so Anthony, what did you think of the the initial flashbacks where you find out that she's Russian and um, you know, and almost drowned and all that kind of stuff? What was your reaction to that? I remember being very taken aback, but in a good way because this is about an hour, maybe forty five minutes to an hour into a first episode that is our like almost feature length, and. That like we we thought like it was one kind of story and it was about this woman coming back, and suddenly you just get this very lush you know like elaborate flashback, and that is also when the opening credits run for the first time, and and so there's this just incredible feeling of disorientation, and I have no idea what this show is. I don't know where they're going with this. Um, the details of of her Russian childhood. You know, I don't know a lot about the country, so I, I can't say for certain, but it had this feeling of almost like a tall tale or a fable. And and so for a long stretch of the show, I really didn't know whether I was supposed to take that story at face value. So I think I, I valued it more just for this wild sort of change in tone than I did for the substance of the flashback. Yeah, it definitely, it feels like, I mean, the flashback is very long to the point where it finishes and you almost forgot you know, what the present, what was going on in the present <laughs> of the story. Um, and so, yeah, so right from the start, the show is just different and weird um, and breaking up traditional TV formats. Um, Sarah, do you have anything you want to add about the, the flashback and the Russian stuff? I think it was filmed that way because we're meant to, you know, uh, f- definitely feel or have, you know, this evocative sense of a memory as when you're a child. Um, and so it, it reminded me actually of Speak Memory, um, which was Nabokov's uh, autobiography, and he wrote about being a child in Russia, and you know that sort of dripping with nostalgia, velvety sense of you know that 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 uh, made Anthony you know see it as almost like a fable. Um, I think that was very intentional and a beautiful choice, and you get you really feel like you know it's a very real, hyper real thing. Uh, to her and uh, was just incredibly transportive. I mean, this is one of those wonderful shows where you're never like tempted to look at your phone, you know, just because it's, it's mm-hmm. incredibly transportive. And, and I think those scenes were very successful. I would have said that the show was, it would um, tempt a lot of people to look at their phones. I mean, I didn't have that reaction, but I felt like the show has a lot of character development and a lot of character development that isn't necessarily directly relevant to advancing the story. 
and that it does sort of, you know, require a certain amount of patience um, from the. Well, I think you you have to you know it depends on how you know if you are if you are interpreting character development to be what does this have to do with the story then yeah you you could totally get bored, but I I don't. I don't really think that way when I'm, when I'm watching a, a series, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's like, do these characters feel real? Do they feel complex? Do they feel authentic? And I think they did such a good job of that. The characters themselves are incredibly compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Well, how about, so I mentioned that she gets kidnapped and locked in this um, basement. She's in sort of a glass cage with um, four other people. Uh, maybe one of them isn't there at the beginning. Um, but basically five other people, or there's five of them in, in these glass cages where they can see each other and talk to each other, but, uh, they can't escape. Um, so, so Raphael, what was your reaction when she gets uh, locked in that glass cell? In episode three of season one, um, or yeah, I guess it's at the end of that one, right? Um, I thought that's when season one really kicked off and got really good. Um, cause I remember watching it the first time and you know, the first couple episodes I thought were all right. But then all of a sudden, next thing I knew I was watching straight till dawn cause I couldn't stop. <laughs> um, so yeah, I thought, you know, that whole five, six episode arc to finish the season was really strong and the experiments and what Jason Isaacs was really up to, you know, hap. Um, it was interesting because, you know, obviously he's kind of doing it against their will. So he's, a little villainous, but he's got some interesting motives. Yeah, and and I agree with you that I found the the parts in the basement where they're all prisoners more interesting or more you know more immediately compelling than the the present of the story where she's telling the story to the high school kids. Although I mean I, mm-hmm. I liked both things just fine, um, but one is sort of a thriller, and then one has more of a um. I mean it feels very realistic um, in a way that not a lot of TV shows do. I mean the characters all feel like very believable people. And I think because we get so much character development, as I was saying, that isn't necessarily immediately advancing the plot. It just gives it this, yeah, this feeling of real life. Yeah. I mean, I think in particular, the character of Steve, who's sort of the, um, kind of the most superficially unlikable one, or even just, just the most unlikable one that he's the one who is, you know, the most angry and the most confrontational, but he also is just, I find him incredibly compelling and, uh, honestly, like I would just watch the Steve show. <laughs> the others I found as well. I mean, there's, there, I think Buck, the, the transgender character, um, this character BBA, who's like an older teacher, uh, pretty much across the board, I found them pretty believable and, and in many cases compelling. And in fact, I would say that as much as I liked the, the captivity lab sequences, I did not find those characters as believable or as compelling. And I think that was one of the reasons why, even though I think there's ostensibly more plot in, in those lab flashbacks, I think I probably enjoyed the present day high school stuff a little bit more just because it felt more real. Yeah, I agree with you that, that Steve is a very compelling personality. He's sort of a, a bully and he has serious anger management issues, but he has this, in, he brings that same intensity to everything he does. And he's, he has sort of a passion that you can't help but like. Um, and then, yeah, the, this character they call BBA, the, the teacher who sort of falls in with them. Um, it's just a really, you know, you don't see a lot of characters like this. Star, you know, is sort of a, a major character in a TV show where she's sort of this weird, lonely, sad, middle-aged woman. 
um, but also has this real, she's just very likable and sort of funny to the, the, just the way she sees the world and things she says is kind of unintentionally funny and makes you like her. Um, Sarah, do you agree with those? Do you have similar impressions of those characters or? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the actress that plays BBA is the, is the voice actor that they got to do sadness in Pixar's Inside Out. So, um, it's <laughs> like, it's very funny. I mean, she's very well cast, but I feel like she kind of does this glum, funny, lovable character in almost everything I've seen her in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, the high school kids are all very sort of genuinely believable high school kids. And, you know, Steve is just sort of this entitled, you know, white boy who's angry for ostensibly no reason. We can't quite figure out yet why he's so angry in the beginning. Um, but, you know, he is influenced by these people that he meets and, you know, it uh, sort of helps to sharpen his focus and and iron him out a little bit and uh, bring out some of the best aspects of his character. And um, there's so many things in this show that, you know, they do that are surprising because they don't handle anything the way that a show, quote unquote, often handles characters like this. So it ends up being really refreshing. Do you agree with Anthony that the high school characters are more compelling than the prisoner characters that, um, I think they're equally, I I feel like they're equally compelling to me, especially because, you know, you, you the characters who are captive are all, you know, deeply, deeply, uh, you know, within the, the realm of trauma. And so when you meet them, they have already been underground for, you know, essentially years. Um, and so it's, it's difficult to, you know, say what would be realistic or not in an environment like that, where, you know, most of us have not hopefully <laughs> experienced anything like that. Um, but it, it certainly seemed, you know, felt true of what I know of, of trauma survivors. So yeah. that, that part felt very, very real. And especially the way that she talks about it as a writer, like, you know, when she says things like the biggest mistake I made was believing that if I cast a beautiful net, I'd catch only beautiful things, um, which I, you know, there's a lot of moments of just profundity um, in, in this show. And I think that's un unfortunately part of what makes people repelled by it, like that the sense of it feels like a novel. Um, where people just sort of want to be entertained and they don't, you know, they, they, they sort of feel hostile to this idea. Well, this show is making me think and I don't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, I think that's an interesting point that the characters would almost have, the, the, the prisoners would almost have to have their personalities worn down from, from years yeah. of captivity. And, and, and it would be sort of weird if they, they were li you know, too lively or engaged or, or something, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I found it completely believable. It was more just in terms of like who I found it more interesting to spend screen time with. I think the, the, the high school, I connected more with the high school students also because of, you know, just the exact same thing that Sarah's talking about it, that there's this trauma that defines the prisoners. And in some ways, I think get, they sort of exist only in this kind of one or two dimensions, whereas the high school students are allowed to be more fully people. And so for that reason, it's, it's not a believability issue, just more of a, an interest and, and compellingness issue for me. See, it, admittedly, I was kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum there. Um, for me, the, you know, OA and the captives from season one, from all the flashbacks, that, that's definitely like the meat of the story and the A story. And to me, the high school kids are the B story. And I actually thought it was to the show's detriment that they spent two whole episodes on just 
B story, basically. Like, I would have preferred it format wise if they kind of interspersed those scenes throughout the other episodes. So we never had to spend too much time with the high school kids because I was checking out, honestly. What did you think, Raphael? So, so, um, OA, the main character, I guess Prairie is, is how we know her initially. Um, she sort of falls in love with one of her fellow prisoners, this guy Homer, and she, they can't touch, but they talk to each other through the glass. What did you think of that character, Homer, in that relationship? You know, Homer didn't leave a huge impression on me from season one, but he grew on me a lot in season two, and I thought that was a pretty interesting story arc. And at first, I was admittedly confused. She's still trying to get through to this guy, and I didn't really understand the purpose because she was too smart, and she should have realized that it was impossible. But um, the way they took that story was a pretty interesting direction, and, you know, I should have had more faith in it. <laughs> All right, well, well, we'll get to season two in a second. Um, but so... um. Yeah, so so we find out. Were you surprised, Raphael, or like, what did you think when we find out about the experiments and the like drowning Homer over and over again and stuff like that? I thought visually it was really interesting, and you know, even even just the fact he was only submersing their heads, <laughs> you know. But um, you know, it obviously reminded me of Flatliners to some degree. You know, thematically pretty similar, like dying just to skirt the edge of death and see what's on the other side and you know the idea of forcing people to do it and i mean that's the big difference between that other movie and this um so you know i thought the experiment and the science behind it was pretty interesting um even though he's kind of a bastard since he didn't exactly take volunteers yeah i haven't seen flatliners but yeah that's that occurred to me while i was watching it i mean i sort of vaguely know what it's about that um yeah it's about these medical students who are uh you know um, doing experiments on themselves where they die and mm -hmm. re uh, resuscitate each other. Pretty um, much. They keep pushing themselves to go for longer and longer. You should check out the original. Skip the remake. I did. I watched the trailer for the remake, and they um, one, of the, <laughs> one of the details in is it, is, is it says that they, they come back with extraordinary artistic abilities. I don't know if that's something that is sort of like part of near-death experience lore or not, or if that – does that originate in Flatliners, or does anyone have any idea if that – how – where that idea originates? I think with Flatliners, they're always kind of... It was a little bit of an odd film because it's kind of a horror film, but it's not at the same time. It's kind of just a character drama. I mean, because essentially they brought back a piece of them from... Every time a character would go into the afterlife briefly, like an element of their past would kind of haunt them, but to varying degrees of success, I think, for the story. I don't know. But it's an it's an interesting movie overall and great cast. Yeah, Anthony or Sarah, do you do you know anything about near death experiences? Ever had a I near death experience? To... Are you having a near death experience <laughs> right now? <laughs> I have not. Uh, I I've certainly had sort of uh, premonitions that came true, things like that. And I think part of the things or one of the things that this that this uh, show is about is you know the un unexplainable mysteries. And that's part of what makes it so compelling, um, because we've all had, you know, experiences like that, that we just can't explain, um, you know, even just something like a strong sense of deja vu, that kind of thing. Um, and I do think that one of the strong suits of the show before we go on to the next season is Hap. Uh, I think Jason Isaacs is a remarkably complex villain in especially season one, because he's just so... You can see why she gets trapped in the beginning because he is incredibly charismatic. Um, 
obviously very good at getting people to trust him, um, very smart, um, but has this, you know, very clinical sense of justification for what he's doing, and he's doing unspeakably horrific things. And yet, uh, you know, he's not, he is not being treated as a 2D villain at all. And there's a lot of 2D villains in television and, and films these days. Um, and to, to see a truly fleshed out villain with, that is, is frightening in his, in his compartmentalization, his ability to just say, well, you know, this is wrong, but this isn't. And I can treat these people as disposable, but not this. And to be able to tread that line, um, in service of, you know, his obsession with his science project and his career is, you know, was very believable and, and very interesting. So it's just really nice to see this, you know, very deep, uh, very, you know, well thought out villain character. Oh, I agree with that. The best antagonists always think they're doing the right thing. And, and you know, yeah. between the writing and Jason Isaacs just being brilliant, it definitely comes across. Uh, you can feel like every time he relates to the to his captives in a very kind of personal human way, you can tell he thinks he's the good guy, you know? So that's great. Yeah. Well, and he, he has a fairly reasonable utilitarian argument for what he's doing, right? Because he's, he's sort of like, I want to remove the fear of death from seven billion people and if that means imprisoning five people for seven years isn't that worth isn't that a, a worthwhile trade-off um which yeah from a utilitarian standpoint you can maybe i could maybe kind of buy but i i always got the sense that 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 wasn't really what was driving him that what what was driving him was more personal ambition sort of power, you know, lust for power kind of stuff. I guess that that gets into season two, so maybe I shouldn't go too far down that road, but um, I will. It's a really interesting ethical question because, you know, it reminds me of uh, Minority Report or something, you know. If it stops murder across the country, should three people be essentially locked up against their will, you know? That's the same thing, really. Yeah. Anthony, what do you think about that? Yeah, Would I mean, you lock I found up five people him... in a dungeon for fear of death from everybody. <laughs> I mean, it, it it also reminds me of I think probably my my favorite short story, the ones who walk away from Omalas. I think this is sort mm -hmm. of an a ongoing question: the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. Um, I I think I would say that for me, what was more compelling about Hap was more just like you said this, both that he had this justification and that he. That it, at the same time he was a person that that he was clearly had ambition and greed and you know anger and and so and that didn't like obviate the idea that he had ideals as well but but he just felt you know maybe the most human of of any of the characters on the show and you know I like in general the arc that they took him on that I think a number of television shows and and um, also the the Marvel movies there's this temptation I think to to as, as as villains kind of stick around, they become softened and and they you know become sort of more like anti heroes or allies of of the of the heroes, and and I think in this case, what they did something really smart of continuing to reveal dimensions uh, of <laughs> sort of a <laughs> uh, loaded choice of word here, but they they reveal reveal different aspects of him without ever sort of soft peddling the monstrousness of what he was doing. Like there was no trying to apologize for, for what he was, you know, the, I didn't get the sense that the showrunners wanted us to think, oh, he's doing the right thing. They wanted us just to say, oh, he has a point of view, but what he's doing is terrible. And I think that's true throughout the entire show. Yeah. I guess there, there's one other very important thing I should explain that I didn't. So when 
um, Prairie almost dies as a child. Uh, she loses her sight because she, so she has this near death experience and she kind of travels to the astral plane and meets this woman, Katoon, who says, I'm going to take away your sight um, because what you're going to to protect you from the horrors of what you're going to see or something like that. Um, and then later when she's an adult and she's uh, imprisoned by Hap, at one point she almost escapes or she like escapes out into the woods and he smacks her in the back of the head when he catches her, he smacks her in the back of the head with a rifle butt. And then she, it happens again. And, um, she gets taught this, um, sort of series of gestures that have some sort of mystical import and her sight is restored at that point. I think that's, I might have some of the details wrong, but I think that's basically what happens. Um, I, I have a theory about that character, but I can't actually get into it until we talk about season two. Okay, well, let's, we'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> actually, now that you say that, I think I might know what your theory is that I had, hadn't occurred to me before. But but yeah, so what did um, uh, Sarah? What did you think of the gest the gestures? They're called what are they called? The movements or something like that? Yeah, the movements. Yeah, the movements. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, like the the idea that they can. They're good enough at, you know, we were talking in the, in the pretentious panel about how, you know, it's, it sometimes seems as if films are either too commercial or not commercial enough to hold your interest. And, you know, that thing that we define as commercialism is just the ability to entertain more people than, you know, a very, very, very small percentage. Um, and, you know, not being afraid of, of using those things that, that, those commonalities uh, to tell a story. And I think she's very good at that, Marling and, you know, the other creator. Um, so I do think that, you know, the fact that they have interpretive dance, the fact that that, that has something to do with the story, they take it seriously in the, in the show. And so you take it seriously as an audience. You know, I think that within the, the reality they set up, it's believable, you know, and I don't, I don't think that I ever thought, well, this is silly. I think I thought, Wow, it's really a testament to how good this show is that I don't think it's silly. Right, I will say. I mean, you know, um, I guess I'll just mention. So the, the the climax of season one is that um, Prairie has taught these magical gestures to the the high school students and revealed that they have the power to um, bring people back to life and open portals through time and space and things like that. And so, um, so the, the high school kids are all at school and the school shooter shows up and they start spontaneously kind of doing the gestures because they're, they're trapped. It's the only thing that they can do. And this, I, depending on your interpretation, either sort of has some magical influence in freezing the, the shooter or just sort of baffles him, uh, and gives one of the cafeteria workers a chance to tackle him. Um, but at that moment where they all stood up and started doing the things, um, that was a moment where I was like, oh, I might laugh at this, um, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Like, I ended up sort of turning a corner into, like, actually, I kind of love this. But I was very, very close to right. to kind of laughing at that part. I feel you on that. And, you know, um, that reminds me, the one thing I really did love about the way season one wrapped up was the sense of ambiguity. Um, you know, there essentially, there was two different viewpoints that people were debating. And it's not really a debate anymore, but... Um, whether or not she was lying, you know, the books that they found under her bed, that whole thing, or if it was all factual and really happening, you know. And to your point, if the if the movements had anything to do with the the shooter being stopped or it was just a distraction. Mm-hmm. What did uh, Anthony, what do you think of the idea that the show kind of tries to make it ambiguous whether she's her story is to be believed or not? 
I actually did not find that particularly interesting as an ambiguity within the show. I think it was fine as, you know, planting the seeds of doubt within the other characters that of course they would kind of be asking each other, like, what are we, why are we listening to this person? Is she, it would basically just, you know, listening to the delusions of, you know, someone with mental illness. Um, and, and that, so that was fine. I didn't like mind it, but I would say that to me, the more interesting ambiguity was more just the question of like, what is, what is it that they're experiencing? And, and, and so like that, having that question open, I think it to me was like a really powerful, like sort of ambiguity at the end of, of the first season versus, you know, the question of, did she imagine it or, you know, she just basically delusional and did she get shot and die? I guess like that didn't strike me as a very interesting ending. If it was re- in my, in my head, it, there was never really a possibility that she died, you know, that, that, yeah. or that there was no, that she might die. And then there was, you know, something that happened afterwards, but that she literally had just imagined the whole thing and then died. Like, I, I don't think I ever really seriously entertained that possibility. No, I, I agree with that. Cause there just seems to be so much. I mean, like she was blind and her sight came back. She's like talks to dogs. Um, you know, she just happens to be standing there at the moment that they do the gestures, and is, is you know, there just seems to be so much stuff that I, I agree. I, I and, and even to the fact that when French, one of the the high school kids, suddenly doubts everything, uh, that that seemed very odd to me. I, I didn't feel like someone who had invested so much and take and risked so much um, to follow this person would would do a pull 180 like that just because he found some books that the, the whole book thing didn't really seem to mean much to me. Um, well, but, but French was the character that, you know, was sort of constantly straddling between this desire to be normal, whatever that is, and be accepted in society and be successful and escape from, you know, this uh, upbringing he had that, you know, it has, is troubled. And, you know, his mom is, is kind of like drunk all the time and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I feel like that's one of the major themes of the show where they have, you know, a lot of these scenes play out in front of an Applebee's inside of an Olive Garden. And I think that they are, you know, making an interesting commentary on, you know, this idea of suburbia as this normalized place and how if you are deviate from that, you know, um, in any way that you are sort of persecuted. Um, and that, that leads very nicely with the themes of, you know, discovery and the themes of the school shooter and stuff like that. So to me, it, you know, it, it, uh, made sense. Mm -hmm. But nobody, did anyone seriously doubt that she, that anything supernatural was going on in this show and that this was just going to be a show about a mentally ill person with who's well no not in so many words i mean the the moment you knew there was a second season like that theory kind of went out the window but it's one of those things where the ambiguity is just fun it should if it had never continued you know because then it's kind of like who the hell knows you could make a case for either but obviously the show did continue so it's pretty conclusive and I don't, I don't think that they that they put that element of doubt in there for the audience i think that they put it in as part of the theme of you know, what belief and faith and listening to somebody is, what it is to listen to a trauma survivor, that kind of thing. And so it's more about the characters, you know, having an excuse suddenly to doubt and what that looks like. And that I think was very realistic than it is about the audience feeling a, a sense of doubt. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah. So as Raphael was saying, the, sh- the, the story continues in season two. 
Uh, also very complicated. So let's see. So, um, so Prairie wakes up. She's been shot and, and dies in a, in an ambulance and wakes up in a, 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 an alternate dimension where things are slightly different. You know, like, um, Joe Biden is the president, um, rather than Barack Obama and stuff like that. And she is now a version of herself who didn't have a near death experience as a girl. So she's not known to anyone as Prairie Johnson. She's known to everyone by her birth name of Nina Azarova. And she lives in a penthouse apartment and her father had lived into old age. And she had been dating this like very wealthy, influential tech guy. Um, oh wait, I don't think I wrote, did I write his? Oh, Pierre Ruskin. Um, and the two of them have gotten up to something weird, but she doesn't know what it is because she doesn't remember. She has no access to any of Nina's memories. Um, and so she's, it's sort of like an amnesia storyline almost where she's going around trying to figure out what, what she's been up to in this, in this alternate life. Um, and then there's also a storyline where there's a private investigator, um, Kareem Washington, and he is hired to find a missing girl who we recognize as a, a, an alternate world version of Buck, uh, the transgender um, high school student that we recognize from the other dimension, from the original dimension. Um, and then we also follow the high school students in the original dimension in the aftermath of Prairie's death from their point of view as they try to sort of make sense of what's happened and reestablish contact with her in this other dimension. Uh, is that a pretty, uh, does that set yeah. up most of the stuff we need to talk about? Makes um, no mention of the octopus, Dave. Well, wait, we'll, we'll get, to, we'll, <laughs> believe me, Sarah, we will get to the octopus. Um, so, so how about Raphael? What were your, you just, you just watched season two. Like, I did. Today, basically, right? Basically, like overnight, I haven't slept. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that seems like effect. the right state of mind. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what was your kind of, how did you think, what was your initial impression of how it compared with season one? You know, I was a little skeptical going into it, but um, right off the bat, it kind of drew me in with uh, the Kareem storyline, because like um, like Anthony alluded to earlier, it was kind of, aside from that very brief flashback, uh, you know, a 20-second flashback with Britt Marling by the side of the road, um, it was taking us down this new storyline. It was kind of like, all right, I'm not sure where this is going. But then the whole way that the game kind of tied into the house and the house tied into the work by the the tech guru, Ruskin, and then his relationship with Percy, Hap, and the Asylum, it all started to coalesce pretty well. Um, yeah, yeah, really. Well, actually, let me just – sorry. Let me just explain that for people who haven't seen the show or maybe sure. are, are still confused even have, having seen the show. So, uh, right. So, so – um, Prairie in, in the body of Nina Azarova very quickly finds herself committed to a mental institution and her fellow prison, the people who were prisoners with her, uh, in the glass cages are now imprisoned with her in this mental institution. And this guy, Hap, the doctor is now has jumped into the body of the head of the, um, uh, of the mental hospital. And it's the same, you know, it's the same guy, you know, in this, you know, same body in this, uh, timeline. He became the head of this mental hospital but now he's he has all the memories from the previous dimension just like she does and actually all the prisoners do except for homer the prisoner that she's in love with he um has jumped into this new world but 
the um, memories of the body from this world have kind of overwritten his personality, so he he doesn't recognize her. Um, and yeah, I think that's <laughs> I think that hopefully yeah. that explains it. Um, so so sorry, go ahead, Raphael. Were you going to say something else? Oh no, it's basically that. I thought that was a great reveal at the end of episode one. I mean, I suppose it was predictable enough that Jason Isaacs would pop up again in a prominent way, but um, I thought that was a great way to get the story going forward. Mm-hmm. How about Anthony? What were your kind of initial impressions of season two? Um, I think I came into it kind of similar to Raphael, where I was a little skeptical, not because um, I had any specific objections to the direction they're taking it in, but because I just liked the way season one ended so much that it, it, it seemed to me like like season one had ended in this sort of very classic kind of like slingshot ending where... You know, it was sort of open to this fu- in the future in a way that was very satisfying for me as as a viewer. That like it's like I don't want to see what comes next because that that to me felt like the end of the story. And so going into it, I was like, oh, this feels a little bit unnecessary, a little bit redundant. But by starting with this whole other storyline, I think it really again kind of took me by surprise. And and so I was like pulled in fairly quickly and I mean because there are so many plots I would say that this season does feel like it takes a little while to get going but overall like very quickly I was won over and I was like I'm I'm in I want to see where this is going I mean in particular just kind of seeing where this because they set up this mystery with the house and wanting to understand what was happening with the house I think that really pulled me in very quickly Here's probably the best compliment I can give season two. If you told me just after season one there'd be five seasons, I'd say that's crazy. Like where this, where could the story possibly go? But now having seen season two, I feel like it's a real loss essentially because it had so many possibilities. All right, let me just sorry. Now I have to explain up about the house. So there's this there's the video game, um, <laughs> and uh, kids are playing it, and there's all these clues. It's sort of this you know it jumps into real life and it's like a scavenger hunt that uh, ultimately leads the hints lead to this abandoned house in San Francisco that is sort of, sort of this weird haunted house kind of place. Um, and so one thing I thought was interesting, given how many people, as I said, going into this, so many people had said that they dropped out in, in season two. Um, but just looking at Rotten Tomatoes, I think the ratings for season one were 77% and then season two were like 94% if I'm remembering correctly. So, um, there's only a lot of people out there who think that season two is much stronger. Um, but so how about Sarah, what, what did you, how did you think, um, season two compared with season one in terms of quality? I loved it. Um, and I think that the, you know, it's incredibly, it's very, <laughs> it's very strange to say that this show is at all super realistic, but it is super realistic in terms of its deep dive into the subcultures of the Bay area. Um, and all of that was incredibly believable. Like I spent some time living in San Francisco. Um, you know, I moved out to San Francisco seven years ago to join a tech startup. And a friend of mine actually said, well, good luck with your little cult. Cause we were all going to be living and working in the same <laughs> building. And I sort of laughed it off. And when I got there, I was like, Oh, Oh, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, within a month or so, somebody had invited me to like a sub burning man party so hmm. in addition to burning man throughout there throughout the year they have these crazy parties that are 
often themed um, where people walk around reciting scripts and reading poetry. And there are just a lot of really rich and strange little subcultures of, of communities in San Francisco. Um, and the, the collision of those communities with the tech bros is 100% real. And so to me, I, I felt like as strange as the show is, uh, that season two especially was just like, yes, I 100% believe that this is happening right now in San Francisco. I agree with that totally with like a specific example. That scene where Homer goes on the date, it didn't really push the story forward in any way, but it felt (laughs) extremely authentic. (laughs) Yeah, yep. (laughs) So Sarah, did you ever get invited to one of those telepathic octopus nightclub parties? I mean, I, it came pretty close. Like there, there was one party where we all had to wear red and we ended up, um, you know, there was like a, a mariachi band and we were all, you know, in a march holding a fake coffin. Um, and so we were all sort of, you know, holding up this coffin going in a line and, you know, I just sort of went for the, you know, experiment of it. Um, but you know, I, I had only really scratched the surface and just enough to see how deep the rabbit hole went. And there were just, there are strange parties. There's, you know, there's, there's people that get together just to cuddle. I mean, there's, there's a lot of drugs and a lot of money and a lot of people who feel sort of disenfranchised and are trying to, you know, expel themselves from this world that they're actively participating in and try to see themselves beyond it. And there's a lot of tech bros who are trying to save the world in, you know, less than ethical ways. And so it's just, you know, I just, I find this whole story, like, it's just a uh, nonfiction to me, hmm. which is hilarious to say about something that out there, but it's true. Well, why don't you just explain, Sarah, about the telepathic giant octopus, like for people who haven't so- seen the show? She goes to this, you know, well, so there's way too much to, to, to describe about how she gets to this place where she, you know, has this key that goes to a, a certain place that she can access. Um, and she's trying to, she has this phone number she can call, but she doesn't know what it does because she doesn't have those memories. And she finds out that when she calls this phone number, she goes to this club that's hidden behind like this other club. And so it's a very exclusive thing. Um, which again felt a hundred percent authentic. Um, and she goes and she is ap- apparently part of these, this, the entertainment where she, um, gets, you know, sort of hooked up to this octopus that's kept in a tank, um, and does things to her and with her. Um, and, you know, well, she basically she, acts as a medium so that the octopus yeah. can speak to the audience. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that was, you know, and that's why she has these like suction cup scars on her arm in the very first episode. Um, but yeah, it's completely strange and yet utterly believable. I mean, this was, for me, this was another one of those moments like the cafeteria shooter scene in season one where I was like this close to being like, this is too silly. But then I took a swerve and so like, this is actually kind of awesome. Um, but how about Anthony? What did you, did you think that scene was awesome or silly? Uh, I thought it was awesome. I mean, I, I agree with you that there, especially going into the scene, there's this like slightly sinking feeling of, oh my God, I can't, they're going to do tentacle porn, like seriously. <laughs> and then it's just shot so beautifully. Um, there's no winking at the audience. It's, it's, you know, the, the, the octopus, 
you know, presumably it's not a real octopus, but it feels like it's there. The voice that it, the actor who plays the voice of the octopus, um, just the detail that he's like, oh, my name is Azrael, but like you call me old knight. And there's like no explanation for why that is. I, I just think like there's this kind of confidence about when the show is making a big ask. It doesn't try to like hold your hand or soft pedal it. It just says, Yes, we are going to have a school shooting and they're going to fight it with interpretive dance. We are going to have, you know, an, a telepathic octopus who uses, who communicates to her through his suction cups. Just go with it. And, and, and I really like that. And I mean, but partly is because it's so artfully done. It's like just to me, like that whole episode that surrounds it is just incredibly beautifully shot. Like it's just so full of, you know, um, mystery and, and, and it's just like really just completely suspenseful and and so like when you see that it just it, i don't know it just it the whole thing just worked so well for me even though objectively i sort of stand back it's like oh if i tried to describe this to my friends i would sound like a crazy person yeah well and as sarah was saying i mean there's a huge like it takes her a long time to get there and you have no idea what's going to happen once you get there and there's all these steps and there's all this suspense building and all this mystery building and to my mind it pays off but uh uh, Raphael, what do you think? Are you pro octopus or anti octopus? Very, very pro octopus. Um, it reminded me of the boar gullet from Star Wars, actually. But I thought the whole thing was um, really well done. The way it builds up the suspense there, because you know they tired of the chair and you have no idea what's happening, and then all of a sudden you see people gathering on the other side of the curtain. I thought the whole reveal was just really well done. Um, and you know, I just like it when shows like this kind of surprise you by going a little, you know, out there. So it was fun. Mm-hmm. I, I did have a couple questions like that are logic based if we want to delve into them. <laughs> okay. they're, they're very specific on the writing. But I don't know if we want to. But, you know, well, it, it, why don't you give us one? What's, what's one? OK. OK. Um, well, like the whole clue. She was she wound up there because they discerned that the clue syzygy led to the phone number in her phone. Right. But how would that have helped anyone else playing the game? Were other people in the game in the audience? Then that'll eventually leads them to solve the mystery and get into the house. It kind of seemed like that was a clue specific only for her, the whole uh, three wise, like three wise man thing, you know? Um, hmm. Well, Sisaji was the name of the laundromat that was the front for the club. So I guess somebody right. could else could have found it i'm not sure i mean i i personally found well, the game clues sort of not that interesting um or believable it but. would have led everyone to the club which is also the secret entrance to the house so regardless of whether or not they can communicate with the octopus mm. that's still how you get into the house that's true good point yeah if we're gonna have sort of like some some criticisms or i mean one of my big sort of pet peeves is police officers or private investigators who like risk their lives, freedom, careers um, for this case um, for for no particular reason that I can see. And I, I sort of felt like that with Kareem, that he's committing just multiple felonies, everything he does, <laughs> um, you know, and it, like and it's like if, if this is how he operates as a private investigator, how is he not in jail already? And if- but isn't that why he's a private investigator? Like, I feel like there's a lot of every private investigator in stories is like this. They're sort of on the fringes and the police sort of barely tolerate them, but work with them because they recognize that they can do things that the police can't do. So I feel like they kind of, you know, that that is the role of a private investigator and that people who are sort of have obsessive personalities are drawn to that career because that is what makes them good at it. 
But but so Sarah, so when he breaks Prairie out of the mental institution, you didn't yeah. that didn't strain your strain plausibility for you? Not really. Well, you know what strain plausibility for me is? I mean, he lives on a houseboat. Like, he doesn't have a family. You don't see him, (laughs) like, go home at night to his wife and kids and kiss them goodnight. He has a very, like, isolated life. You know, he's not not a normal guy. And then it turns out, as the plot, you know, develops, that he is part of the story. Well, to your point, though, David, where it lost uh, realism points for me a little is the aftermath of that, because, you know, the whole breakout kind of just got out of control. Eventually, you know, he was just trying to sneak her out initially. But um, then afterwards, they immediately just go and chill out at her apartment for a long time. (laughs) And it's like, come on, that's the first place the cops would check. And they kind of, you know, allude to that because they say, oh, a patrol car went by. But it's like, come on. (laughs) You know, that's like cops would have been there. I think they were trying to make a point there about rich people and how they live in a different realm than us because like she this woman nina has a tremendous amount of money and she you know travels in circles of people who have a tremendous amount of money the whole thing is being oversaw by you know ruskin on some level and so you get the sense that if pierre ruskin wanted her to be arrested for breaking out he would you know that kind of thing and then there's the doctor you know the um Jason Isaac's Hap character, you know, who also kind of has a little bit of that power. And so I don't think it was meant to be interpreted as this traditional thing where you're wondering, well, why aren't the cops breaking in? Because it's like, well, they're not because she's wealthy and she's living this in a completely different world with completely different rules than the rest of us would. Sure. I guess I don't completely buy that because, or at least that's not how I read it, because there's no scene where we can see the mechanics of that working. All we see are Jason Isaac saying, you got to go after her. Make sure you keep emphasizing that, you know, she's dangerous. And then that really never pays off in any way. It's more just, um, oh, there's a cop car that drives by once in a while. And, and so to me, that read much more as we're not particularly interested in investigating the sort of fallout of, of the, the police coming after. We just want this to be a sort of low-level, you know, threat in the background. Um, and it, to me, it read more as just, wow, the cops are really bad at their jobs. <laughs> sure. Because, you know, maybe she's rich and has immunity effectively, but uh, the detective had just assaulted like three orderlies. <laughs> you know, they would have been coming after him, you'd think. Uh, all right. So there's like so much more plot here. It sort of intimidates me to even think about it. Um, but just to <laughs> quickly, just to sort of touch on some of it. So it turns out that, uh, I think Pierre Ruskin had been financing experiments where people had their dreams analyzed, uh, and they looked for patterns and the patterns had either led them to this house or given them some clues about how to deal with this haunted house. And then Nina had given him the idea to create this virtual reality game to lead kids to the house so that they could try to solve what was going on in it. Um, the dream messages were also telling them that they wanted, that the house somehow wanted Kareem to go there. Um, he goes there at one point and has this sort of like haunted house hallucinogenic experience, um, which is later explained as possibly being, um, you know, toxic gas emanating from the ground or something. And, uh, and also it turns out that Hap has kidnapped the high school kids from this second dimension and has them floating in a tank or like a pool 
where there's like weird alien plants growing in them. And this is somehow allowing him to map the mycelial network. Um, <laughs> no, sorry, that's Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the dimensions. Um, and he also meets this woman, Elodie, who's like someone who habitually jumps from dimension to dimension. And, uh, as a result of that interaction, he gets his hands on these cubes that sort of unfold mechanically and enact the, the movements so that you don't need friends. You can just do it all by yourself. Uh, see now, yeah, these are some of the best parts of season two. I think you just touched on. All right. So, so why don't you pick up on that, Raphael? Well, I particularly love the character of Elodie. I thought that was really fascinating right off the bat. And you probably picked up on the theory I was going to allude to. Can you guess? <laughs> that well, she's... so when you, when you said it earlier, I thought you were going to say that Katoon is Elias Rahim, who I actually haven't even mentioned yet, but is the FBI agent. But no, uh, you're going to okay. say something else. You're going to yes. say she's Katoon? Possibly. I mean, that was my first thought, and I guess it's still in play for the time being. She just seems to have so much information about this, and just the fact that Katoon didn't make uh, an appearance or a mention, really, in Season 2. I don't know. It's Maybe it's too obvious in hindsight, but it could work. But I thought the whole thing with her being able to hop into multiple realities, as many as 14, possibly, according to that final scene, that was a great reveal. Um, you know, with those little boxes. It did leave me wondering, though, does she have to, like, recreate those boxes every time she hops to a new reality? I don't know. Okay, so in a second, we're going to get to what happens when Kareem Washington makes it kind of to the heart of the haunted house. But before we talk about that, is there anything else about all the stuff I just mentioned, um, Anthony, that you wanted to touch on? Um, Maybe we should talk a little bit about Pierre Ruskin, because he is this character who's in the background of most of the season and they've sort of very ostentatiously don't show you his face but he's clearly like like the puppet master you know behind a lot of what's happening he's also the sort of unseen boyfriend of of uh prairie in this universe uh, named nina and, and then so at the very end of the second to last episode kareem finally meets him and he is played by Vincent Carthizer, I think is his name, um, from Mad Men. And he basically just has this one scene where I think, you know, it's, it's a perfectly good scene, but I think if I have, in terms of things that I sort of quibble with and, or have reservations about in the second season, I thought that was not a very satisfying payoff to these seven episodes of build up to this, you know, incredible mastermind. And then when we see him, I mean, I think, it ties into some of the thematic stuff that Sarah is talking about, that he has a very similar view of progress um, that Hap does, that, you know, that that you can sort of go through, you know, that, that the progress is built on, like, bloodshed and pain and and conquest and, and this idea that, of course, like, five people, that the way you get there is through five people suffering. And, and he has, like, so I think in some ways he echoes who Hap is, but as a character he sort of felt um, a little bit, disappointing just because we'd heard so much about him and then we saw him this one time in a reasonably good scene and then you know basically disappears from the narrative and he doesn't know really anything about the house that we don't already know right like he's trying to figure it out still at this point in the, the, story. the one thing he knows is that kareem for for some reason is the person who's going to solve it and he's the one who shows kareem that there's actually this fourth element to the dreams that Marlowe didn't tell him about, which is that it, Kareem himself is, is everyone, you know, 
saw Kareem in their dreams, and so he's sort of destined to be the one who solves the house. Right, but the house is just basically magic or a haunted house or something, right? We don't. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> I mean, because you said you were dis- is that is that you were disappointed just because because um, he's too similar to Hap, or or is there more to why you or just. Yeah, I just thought there would be more to him as a character, um, but it, it felt like... And I mean, I'm glad we spent more time with Hap, because ultimately Hap is the character that I'm invested in. It just felt like if, you know, you're going to have this character who everyone is talking about for seven, roughly seven hours of the show, and then you show him for one scene, like, I feel like there's so much buildup and there's so much expectation that it's not it's not so much that I thought it was bad or or, or, or wasn't, you know... That, that it was sort of careless or anything like that. It just felt like, in some ways, a little bit of a red herring, where I was like, oh, okay, that's Pierre Ruskin, that's fine. That seems not really to be where where the show is invested in for this, you know, wrapping up this story. Yeah. Sarah, what did you think of Pierre Ruskin? Uh, I think he was totally believable. And I think, you know, again, it, it sort of alludes to this subcultures of Silicon Valley and, and these overlords that you know, are very sort of cool and collected and doing all of these, you know, uh, unethical things that they've cleared with their lawyer. Um, but I do think that we haven't seen the last of him or wouldn't if the show is allowed to continue. I think that, you know, people, I think, um, you know, to, to expect that, that it would be wrapped up in that scene, when to me that scene was almost like an introduction to the character. Like, even though we've seen him you know, without seeing him, uh, in the original, you know, original couple of episodes of, of season two, that's really the introduction to the character, right? And so it follows that we would see him again. And I don't know, you know, whether we would see him in season three or whatever, obviously we don't see him again in this season. Um, but I do think it, it tracks for the inner, inner logic of the story to have these sort of puppet masters in the background that we're not meant to entirely understand yet. Well, and to your to your earlier point about Nina Azarova, right? He, he basically says, feel free to record me confessing all my sins. Take it to the yeah. police. See how far you get with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I liked, I liked his cool confidence there. I mean, basically the guy was there to implicate him, but instead he just kind of led him along. And then that reveal that the guy was the fourth thing in the dream, the commonality. So that was cool. All right. So let's talk about what happens when Kareem makes it to the Rose stained glass window in the house, which is sort of the heart of the house. And so, so it, so it kind of opens up and, um, and, and basically it turns out that, oh, okay. So, so there's also this, sorry, before that, there's this scene where, um, OA confronts Hap and he's created somehow, I don't know how he did this so quickly, but he's created sort of giant duplicates of those cube things that open up and perform the movements. And so he's able to transport the two of them to exactly the dimension that he wants. And it turns out that the, exactly the dimension that he wants is is a dimension in which the OA is a TV show starring Britt Marling and Jason Isaacs. And, you know, she jumps into Britt Marling and he jumps into Jason Isaacs. In this version, they're married. Um, and so, uh, so we're given the idea that this is his sort of dream scenario for seducing her and making her doubt that any of the any of her previous lives were real because she's going to think that it's all just the TV show. Um, as I was watching this, I was just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, like, what are you doing? Um, now that I've thought about it, now that I've had some time to process a little bit, I kind of, I can, I can kind of justify going in this direction. 
But um, Raphael, I think you just you said you watched this scene right right before we uh, started recording, right? So so it's still oh, yeah. fresh for you. So what what how did you react to that scene? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, it's very fresh, so I'm still processing as well. But um, my reaction was similar to yours. I was like, wow, this is really meta and interesting, and yet. I kind of hate it, <laughs> you know? Uh, it just didn't feel right. But, you know, they've earned the benefit of the doubt. I'm really curious to see where it would have gone um, or if it still does somehow. But, um, yeah, that was a hell of a twist. I didn't I didn't see that coming. And, Anthony, you just watched this, what, yesterday? Yesterday, yeah. Um, and I would say that I wasn't crazy about it. I didn't – it was – I think, like, it, there was there – was, there was, you know, it was relatively – you find, you see like basically one or two scenes taking place in this new dimension, um, this more sort of meta storyline, but it isn't a big part of it. And so I didn't, I, I was skeptical, I would say, and, and I remain skeptical about it, but I, as like the ending to that episode, I didn't hate it. I wasn't completely won over either. Sarah, what do you think? Um, I was fine with it. And part of it is that I, I, you know, I, I understood from the, the, the style of the show, you know that they're going to pull something crazy out at the eleventh hour. Like that's that's what they do. Um, you know, it's it's one of the the characteristics of the show that sort of repeats itself. And I think that it would, um, if if I've ever seen a breaking of the the you know the fourth wall in in anything, it, this did it the most successfully for me. But you know, for me, it. it 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 felt pretty pretty real and you know you're talking about international travel it's it's only natural that you would also talk about actresses and the idea of you know assuming different identities and so on so it didn't it didn't uh, shock me in a bad way well you you say the 11th hour and and this is i guess the 11th hour of season 2 but it's right. it's it's like the I don't know, fifth hour or something of the whole five season arc and it just makes me wonder if this is what they're doing you know, at the end of season two, what's the plan for like, how do you top that at the end of seasons three, four, and five? Right. But you asked yourself that same question at the end of season one, right? Like you could never have imagined that everything that happened in season two would, would be the natural extension of season one and connect with it so well. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's such a shame that people, uh, and I think, I feel like people, because of the way that Hollywood is structured, we get into these situations where you have showrunners throw in crazy, fantastical elements to a story that make people, that make all the fan theory websites light up like a Christmas tree and then go nowhere because of the way that, that those, that shows are sort of written, most shows are sort of written and planned as they happen. And this wasn't. And it's such a it's such a sad thing to to potentially lose that because you know we sh we really should have more shows that are planned out from the beginning, and I feel like people get this fatigue, you know, lost fatigue because they they you know lost sort of is the one that most famously did this. There were all of these fantastical elements, fascinating details that came out every season that led absolutely nowhere. And then the, the very last episode was just a, a joke, uh, you know, and, and, and half the fan theories on Reddit were infinitely better than what they came up with. Um, and, you know, again, it happened with Game of Thrones where the, the showrunners... Wait, no spoilers, because they I haven't lost... seen it. Okay, I won't say it, but, <laughs> but uh, suffice to say... I'm waiting for the books, goddammit. 
You have seen the internet, yeah, <laughs> Dave, so I feel like it's pretty unavoidable at this point. Well, so, so Anthony, what do you think about um, what Sarah – you, are you buying Sarah's uh, defense of this uh, crazy twist? I mean, I, I agree that it, it, in the sense that to a certain extent it seems clearly that it was setting up something else, and so it's sort of hard to judge on its own. Um, and, and so that's why I, like, I wasn't like, you know, throw, metaphorically throw the TV across the room, um, or the iPad I was watching it on. Um, but more just like, my response is more just kind of, huh, okay, well, this seems like a very dangerous direction to go in, but, you know, I, I certainly, the, they've earned my trust and, and so I'm willing to go along with it. I think, in general, my feelings about the two seasons of the show that we did get were, almost inverse in that season one, I I think mo- for the most part, I admired it, but wasn't necessarily fully engaged or in love with it. And then the final episode um, completely won me over. Even, you know, like that, that I just found it, even though, again, it, we, there was this sort of edging into silliness, but it was like, to me, like tremendously moving. And it's like hard for me even to talk about that final scene without like getting, you know, kind of emotionally overwhelmed again. Um, and then my reaction to the second season was, I think this is, as a season of television, much stronger and, and one of my favorite, you know, seasons of TV on Netflix. I mean, I, I thought it was just pretty much terrific and including large stretches of the finale, except that it led to this thing that made me go kind of, huh, okay, well, it would have been cool to see where they went with it. On its own, it's an okay ending, but I'm not, you know, certainly nowhere near as sort of, excited or or impressed by it as I was by the season one finale. Yeah, let me say, because I, I just feel like suspension of disbelief is such a evanescent sort of thing. And, you, you know, like like in a, in a zombie movie, right? Like, you know, why don't the characters ever say like, oh, this seems like a zombie movie? And it's like, well, because if they said that, then it'd be like, well, wow, this does seem like a zombie movie. Maybe we're in a zombie movie. Hey, you look like Tom Cruise. Like, oh, hey, you look just like Woody Harrelson. It's so, like the whole thing just, you know, once you pull that first little thread yeah. out, the whole thing just kind of unravels. And so um, I think, it, yeah, like you said, like dangerous, Anthony, you said is a good word to use. Right. That it's like, you know, it, do you just risk completely breaking the spell by just so foregrounding the artifice of, of what's happening? Yeah. And to and, echo the previous thoughts, it definitely could have worked. And I'm sure they had a good plan, but it seems like a step too far because you've got this whole sliding doors motif with, you know, uh, Nina slash Prairie. And it's easy to see how, like, you know, she lived two separate lives that were similar based in the same original life. But it's like, then how do you go to all of a sudden she's just portraying a character called Nina slash Prairie, isn't it? And that seems like a really big leap. So I think that one way to think about the way that OA is structured, though, and I think it's it's one of the things that, that, that sets people off, right, is that the very last episode is in it would be in any other TV show the very first episode of the next season. They do this thing where they you know, other TV shows have cliffhangers, right? And if you, if you, if you ended the OA on the, say, you know, each episode has uh, eight, eight episodes, I think, if you ended it on the seventh episode, then it would be a cliffhanger, right? Because we don't know what happened. And instead of, of merely introducing a cliffhanger, they say, we're going to throw a damn wrench into the whole story we just told, which is always immediately followed up and picked back up in the next season. 
but that's a tremendously ballsy thing to do. And and, and not a lot of, of television shows do that. Even though other television shows end on cliffhangers, they do it in a traditional way that people understand. And OA does not. They're just like, nope, we're gonna we're gonna start telling the next story before we get there. And, you know, that frustrates a lot of people. I am not one of them and I, I, I desperately wish that people were a little more patient. But I feel like structurally, if you think of it that way, if you think of it as this last episode is always the first episode of the next season, then it makes more sense. I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm just sort of like projecting in my head what would season three be, and I just imagine like all these like production meetings and like all this like it's, it's just hard for me to imagine like <laughs> that going on for too long before I just like yeah. can't buy this anymore. I mean, like maybe if this is just like one or two episodes and then they go to something else, I could sort of like you know, be like, okay, that was cool and interesting. But like, if this is all of season, I mean, I would be unbelievably fascinated to see if they could pull it off. But just in my mind, I don't see, I just don't picture it working. If I had to guess, they probably spend very little time in that universe. They probably move on quickly or something. Yeah, I mean, they did the same thing at the end of season one. Did they, did they then dwell on suburbia and school shootings in season two? No. Right? So you gotta have, you gotta have, patience and faith that of the existing structure you know based on what i'm a rationalist sarah i don't believe in <laughs> <laughs> now that said to, to sarah's point about them being ballsy that's definitely true but i think you could also say slightly reckless like narratively to kind of this is two times in a row they left the season on kind of an unforgivable cliffhanger if it doesn't continue and i think you have to take that into account like i don't think you can just assume you're going to get renewed you you know try and find the balance a little better well, every other show does it, in fairness. Like, you know, the the absolutely horrible Another Life that just came out, they ended on a pretty big cliffhanger and just assume that the story is going to continue. A lot of science fiction that, you know, is 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 working with this larger uh, larger idea. Battlestar Galactica did it. Sure. I, mean, but I think Another yeah, Life is all... wrapped up a lot better, though. I mean, I actually love that show, but if it, there was never another episode, it's kind of just a prelude to a bigger story, but it doesn't end on a cliffhanger, per se. I mean, it's... it's... I, I would also... I would argue that the season one of this show actually, I mean, I can understand why that felt like a cliffhanger to a lot of people, but if the show had ended there, that to me would have been a perfectly self-contained story. Then that would have been the perfect ending to that story. Right. I mean, I don't mind cliffhangers, honestly, at all. I think a cliffhanger is kind of a good way to end a series. I mean, my, my concern is more like, what was their plan for season three? And if they do do a season three, could that possibly work? I think it works okay as like it's just a weird mind melting ending to the show. Right. I um, mean, it, it's all about the kind of cliffhanger and how it contextualizes things. Cause at this point, it kind of leaves it feeling like an Outer Limits episode or Twilight Zone or something. See, th this is all why we can't have nice things though. Like every time we, we see a, a, a new, you know, Disney remake come out, if we go in the comment section, which for some reason I do because I'm crazy, people are like, <laughs> why, why do we have the same stories over and over again? Why don't we have new stories? This is what it looks like when you do new stories. You don't just fuck with what, what the, what the story is. You, you fuck with the, the, the structure of storytelling itself and what people believe that they have been led to expect. And people get upset if you take that away. And it's like, you know, you ask for new stuff. When we give you new stuff, you give up halfway through the season. You stop watching it and you declare it unwatchable. And I just, it's just, it's no, tragic you. to me. No, I, I'm totally with you, Sarah. I, I would give a lot <laughs> to know what their plan was for season yeah. three, four, and five. And and I would be happy to, to, to have it demonstrated that 
they had something that was going to work. I, I, I think it's a, a, an absolute tragedy that if we never find out the answer to that question. I do hope that she writes books because I, I honestly see that as the natural extension. Like, I think that, you know, if, if we can't get another, another network to pick this up or whatever, the way that Amazon uh, did it with the expanse, uh, I think they would make absolutely wonderful books. And if you've read anything that Britt Merling has posted about it on Instagram and Twitter and stuff, she's a wonderful writer and she, she could do it. So I oh, don't she's know fantastic. why, you know. You this know, I think not... a realistic outcome might be, you know, with Sensei, they gave that little miniseries wrap-up or just a two-hour movie um, after it was yeah. canceled. Maybe they can at least give her two hours per season just to kind of wrap things up instead of eight hours per season, which is probably more than necessary. I think she would not know what to do with two hours. Like, <laughs> she'd be like, two hours? I mean, just look at the style that, she, that she's, she, you know, she likes to weave these long things. She's... Oh, She's a sure. novelist. No, I, I agree with you. Like, it does feel like you're watching a novel. But if you had to, you could have truncated season two into two and a half hours. Does anyone give any credence to the idea that this is some crazy publicity stunt uh, meta narrative sort of thing? The cancellation of the show and then everyone has to, like, do the movements in real life on YouTube to save the sh- to bring it back to I, life. Like, I uh, think she – no. I think she shot that down as of like two hours ago. I read the most recent thing was like her responding to the girl who was doing a hunger strike. Um, there was a, a girl who had not eaten in several days who was like, you know, camped out outside of the Netflix headquarters. And the showrunners actually met her with food and water and were like, hey, you know, please eat. <laughs> um, so, but I do think that, you know, the, the, the titles of the article were basically like, no, guys, it really is dead. This is not some meta joke that's part of the story, unfortunately. You know, this is, this is not. So if she hadn't come on and clarified, then maybe given the strangeness of the show, I might have considered it. Yeah, it I, might I, be I a possibility. I, I can't imagine them doing that just because of what future behavior from fans that would invite, right. you know? Yeah. But, like, <laughs> yeah. if they did it, like, holy fuck, talk about a mind fuck of all mind fucks. Like, holy shit. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of Game of Thrones a minute ago, it feels like this was probably a direct casualty of that Benioff and Weiss deal. I mean, they got, what, $100 million development deal? So a lot of Netflix shows got the axe all of a sudden. Well, I, I think there's some broader context there. who would give there, them money that, after what they did? <laughs> Netflix has been, you know, re- signing a lot of really big checks to, to like, big-name showrunners. Like, they had the $300 million deal for Ryan Murphy, $100 million for uh, Shonda Rhimes. Like, you know, like, this is, like, the, the Benioff and Weiss deal was sort of the latest in a number of deals. And it seems like that is the direction that they're going in and then they also they did they signed that deal they also had a had a really bad quarterly uh, earnings report and you know subscriber growth is not going the way they want it to and and so then they had a number of as as Raphael was alluding to they had a number of cancellations at around the same time so i do think that it's a victim of the broader business you know fortunes of netflix i don't know that pegging it specifically to benioff and weiss is entirely fair i i will, am happy to string them up by their entrails i i'm very, like i and you know it's it's so frustrating because it's so obvious that what happened with 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 D is they they as soon as they lost the source material because they ran out of okay wait wait because... i feel like this is going off topic <laughs> well, no, I, I, I promise i'm not going to get into any spoilers i'm just saying that 
they aren't showrunners themselves. They're not content creators. They are producers. And when they ran out of the source material, they didn't know their ass from their elbow. This woman is a original content creator. She is coming up with the content herself. She is acting in it. She's doing all this work with her partner. And it's just so frustrating to see the same hacks rewarded over and over again because they brought in, you know, they, they rode the coattails on, on George R. R. Martin's material. But they, they as soon as they ran out of that, they didn't know what they were doing. I definitely lament the loss of a Brit Marling show, but I do not agree at all with that Benioff and Weiss assessment. But I'll just leave it at that. Well, let me let me ask you, Sarah. I mean, one other thing that I I sort of thought about the finale of season two and sort of what it seemed to suggest about the direction for season three was that once again, Prairie is going to be sort of a prisoner of Hap and sort of abused by him and under his power. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to see another season of like this woman being kind of under the power of this man and being like gaslit by him and stuff like that. I was just curious what your what sort of what your take on that would be as a you know for, coming from a feminist perspective. Well, but she isn't like she she defeats him in multiple ways throughout each of these shows, each of these seasons. You know, in the first one, she defeats him in, in her own way, where he kind of lets her go um, because of the dynamic between them, because of of all of the things that have happened, um, and recognizes that by letting her go, he's already taken from her what he wanted. He has already broken her, right? And then in the uh, second season, she has that wonderful speech with him, where she kind of says, you know, that, that she, you know, I couldn't, I can't remember the words exactly, but she basically talks about, you know, how she is, you know, rises up every time he hurts her and becomes more powerful. Um, and so from a feminist perspective, it is a very fascinating take on trauma and on, on the relationship you have with abusers and stuff like that. And on, on indeed the patriarchy. And to me, the whole reason why this canceled, you know, this show was canceled is because we are seeing the same tropes over and over again played out where people respond to masculine storytelling. They respond to the same stories over and over again. That's where they're willing to put their money in. And at the same time, they're over here saying, well, where are all the new stories? When we give them to you, this is what happens. Do you think that that could continue for five seasons? Or do you think she has to more decisively defeat him before we get to the end of the five episodes? I think if what you're asking is, is do I expect to see another season where she's being traumatized and another season where she's being traumatized and then she wraps, she finishes him off at the 11th hour. And I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think if you are watching the show carefully, you notice that she is always the victor in her own way. Um, and, you know, she just, it's it's a very different way of, of taking on this idea of dominance. She's, she's not winning in in a very traditional sense she's not murdering him at the end and everybody stands around cheering you know that, that that's not the story that's being told here it's a much more intimate much more internal way of of talking about you know gaining power in spite of all of this trauma mm -hmm. do you um so anthony you were talking a lot about the sort of financials of netflix and stuff does anyone have any idea what the prospects are for netflix changing their minds or the show getting picked up by some other streaming service or something. Is there anything, any buzz about any of that? I haven't heard anything about that. Do you think like Amazon might pick it up or anything like that? 
It seems possible. I mean, that's um, one of the interesting things to me, you know, as somebody who writes about the business is the fact that I think part of how Netflix built their reputation at the beginning was as somebody who revived these beloved properties like Arrested Development. Um, and so there was this idea of, oh, like this thing that was cut, killed before its time, maybe Netflix will be the saviors and the ones to uh, resurrect it. And then, you know, this year they've sort of found themselves on the other side of that equation where they've been canceling a lot of shows and then they canceled one day at a time, which is being revived on another network. So it seems like, I mean, I don't know the details of, of you know, um, the, of the ownership structure around the OA in particular, but it seems like that's something that, that has it happened at least one other time. I, 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 I'm not sure of this, but I, I think I saw somebody post something sort of demanding that Netflix release the rights to the OA back to Britt Marling so she could continue the story or shop it around, um, which made me think that she doesn't have the same sort of deal um, that like The Expanse had, for example, with sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it, does anyone have any know anything about that? That would be a dick move. If that's why she can't take it and do other things with it, that would suck. Yeah, my sense in, in most of these cases is that usually, you know, the production company has, like, the the ultimate rights, but that, you know, usually you can sort of shop it around and then they probably have to pay. If you wanted to make a third season, you'd probably have to pay Netflix a certain amount of money um, in, in order to, to, to make that third season, but that it wouldn't be, you know, impossible. But that's just speculation on my part. We really just have to get Jeff Bezos to become a fan of the OA because the whole reason why The Expanse <laughs> was renewed is because Jeff Bezos was personally a fan and he just obviously wanted to continue, you know, seeing it. It seems like more than once a long layoff between seasons has kind of taken away buzz from a show. It kind of happened with Westworld and the OA. You know, seasons one on both shows were very popular and talked about, but then no one was really talking about season two of the OA that I really noticed. It kind of just was flying under the radar this time. And it was a two and a half year gap between. And she explained why that, why that's part of their process is that they are writing it and acting in it. So they can't like just spend the season writing it while the actors are, you know, working on, on the previous season. Like they have a completely different process because she's doing so much. I think it's just an unfortunate reality that people will wait two to three years for a movie installment, but they lose their train of thought and momentum with the TV show. It's just not the same. Right. And it's, we're talking about eight hours of content versus two hours of content. So to me, it should be the norm that we're taking a long time between seasons. If you want the season to be any good. Right. I I agree. Like I said, I mean, I hadn't heard, I didn't know anything about the OA, like what it was about or anything. And I follow obviously this stuff, you know, reasonably closely. And, and I mean, I've seen so much passion for this show, um, on Twitter, um, you know, after the, the cancellation was announced. Um, but it, it does seem that, you know, it has a very, very passionate fan base, but maybe a, a small fan base. It's kind of the sad reality that sometimes you don't realize a show is popular until it gets canceled. I mean, like Farscape, all of a sudden the fans launched a whole campaign, but sometimes it's too late. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen a lot of people sort of blaming Netflix's algorithmic, you know, approach for this, you know, that they, they sort of like, they fund tons and tons of stuff. Like so much stuff, it's just like going on Netflix is like this giant, it's like this jungle of like content. Like you don't even know what's what. Um, and then they just, rely on the algorithm to, um, you know, prune that down and that that doesn't, you know, would tend not to reward offbeat, smart, 
you know, polarizing shows that might, you know, have more artistic merit. Yeah. And Netflix's algorithms, they've always put way too much stock in those. Like I personally, everything I've ever watched on Netflix, I've usually watched because I don't want to pay for it on iTunes to download it from the Apple Store through my Apple TV because I'm only casually interested in it. Or, you know, and I'm not talking about the original series, obviously, but the in terms of movies and stuff or other TV shows that uh, were not original series by Netflix. But so all of their, you know, just in terms of me as a user, their, what their algorithm knows about me is these are the things that I've watched. But what they don't know is these are not, are literally the things that I did wasn't interested in enough to watch in the theater or to watch uh, to to rent you know paying for it hmm. through other traditional means. So therefore, by you know f- from the beginning, your algorithm is working on faulty information. So I generally don't get a lot out of the things that it suggests that I watch. So um, I, I have seen some protests planned. Um, I saw this thing where it's like they have a particular date. I think maybe it was October 18th. I'd have to check that. But, you know, they're trying to get people to threaten to uh, cancel their Netflix subscriptions if uh, if the OA isn't uh, renewed by that by that date. Um, I'll do it. I can live without Netflix for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, I, I would cancel it and then and then sign back up when the next Stranger Things came out or something. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I don't think that that's likely to uh, be successful. To work, but um, I don't know, Sarah. Do you have any? Do you have? Any, are you going to be protesting in any way? I've been, you know, racking my brains trying to think of some creative solution because I don't think that protests in this, you know, of, of entertainment are particularly successful for the reasons we just outlined, right? Like, I would love to give up my Netflix, but unfortunately, there are other things that Netflix does uh, that I would still like to watch, and so I, you know, can't. I would only be doing it as a, a show of you know, for a month or, or two. So it's, you know, it's, it's really frustrating because it's very hard to, to, you know, as a, as a small little audience member to know what to do about stuff like this. And I really have a lot of respect for the fans who are out there, you know, creating new hashtags and creating new Twitter accounts solely devoted to saving the OA and doing all of these crazy things and learning the movements. I, I, I am way too introverted to do that sort of thing. Hmm. So it's uh, wonderful to watch them do it. And I've actually followed a couple of people and they followed me back just because you end up, you know, sort of uniting together because you're all trying to save this precious thing. Yeah, you actually, you changed your Twitter handle to... I, I sure did. Yeah. That's, that's the perfect response of an introvert. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right, cool. So we're pretty much out of time, so we should start wrapping this up. Um, so how about Anthony? Do you have any final thoughts at the end here about the future of the OA or how it felt to watch it or talk about it or anything? Um, no, I mean, I, I would say that, again, in general, I, I felt like the, the show got a lot better. I liked the first season, and I thought the second season was even better. Um, and it was interesting the way that, that Sarah was talking about it as this sort of like meticulously – planned show and I don't know a lot about what happened behind the scenes so certainly that that sounds like that's the case but but in fact what I responded to about it was not the feeling that all the pieces were fitting together but just the sort of moment to moment inventiveness and and just sort of the fact that like on in any given episode it felt like anything could happen and and so for that reason I'm I'm certainly sad to see it go um but but I'm glad we got the two seasons that we did. Yeah, you know, I watched an interview with uh with Britt Marling on YouTube and 
um, and one of the one of the comments I read, it said, um, you know, that she's such a presence that even this sort of fairly typical promotional interview for her TV show seems like religious somehow because you know she's so like. I don't know. She, she, you know, she conveys this sense of just thoughtfulness and deepness and sort of otherworldliness almost. And so the show really is, you know, I, I don't think it could be the show it is without her. And she's just so perfect. It was written for her, you know, by her. Um, and yeah. And, and again, it's just sort of a shame that that sort of um, singular, you know, character, you know, can't make it past two seasons. Um, but I'm, I'm sure she'll do amazing things, uh, in the future anyway. Um, but so, uh, Raphael, final thought. Yeah, I think Britt Marling's one of the most talented people in Hollywood. And I think if, you know, if that's the end of the show, it was still two superlative seasons and we were lucky to have it. Um, it just had great big ideas like that mycelial network and talking octopuses, psychic octopuses. So, you know, it's a shame, but I loved it. So it was a good run. Yeah. Sarah, final thought. Um, I wish that I had thought to, to, to save this beforehand, but the, the, the words that, uh, Brett Marling wrote about, uh, the end of the show and the way that she described the end, um, you know, I wish I had thought about opening this up on my computer before we, but they're, they're worth reading because, um, she really talks about what it is to, um, you know, tell a story together um, with a group of people rather than there being an individual hero and why that attracted her to speculative fiction in the first place, why that attracted her to science fiction, um, you know, just about being a woman and constantly being sort of stuck in these very specific ways that stories are told and wanting to break free of that. And to me, that's what makes me trust her as a, a content creator. Like you can see the work is there in terms of this desire to communicate. And it's not that she's this, you know, she's a lot of content creators, a lot of showrunners are out there going, okay, well, what's the next big story? Or, um, you know, they, they sort of latch onto other people's stories and say, how do we tell this? And you, you just really feel that sense of authenticness from her that she is very desperately trying to rearrange the way that we tell stories entirely. And I just have so much respect for her and she's worth following on Twitter and Instagram and stuff to, to read what she has said about the ending of this show. Yeah. And that point about the importance of community, she, she makes that same point in this um, Georgetown convocation speech I watched, which is amazing. Everyone should definitely watch that. And she talks a little bit about, um, you know, kind of how she got started in film and, and, and um, her work with her collaborators and things. And just after she finishes, it just shows a shot of the audience and people are just turning into each other and saying like, wow, like mouthing, wow. And, and she yeah. gets a standing ovation. Um, so definitely check that out. And yeah, I um I am not giving up hope that we will see more OA. If you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it, definitely give it a try. As we said, it's not for everybody, but the people that it connects with, you can see on Twitter, it, it really, really connects with them. And so it's worth um, definitely giving it a shot. And yeah. And if you, um, if you love the show and you want it to continue, I would keep an eye out for campaigns or, you know, whatever you might be able to do to, um, you know, to spread the word about it. Um, you know, I, I think we haven't necessarily seen the end of this show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Raphael Jordan. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again. And that was our panel.
So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Raphael Jordan for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Clement Coleman, Garrett Luster, and Anders Kilstedt, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.